The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. Hello, this is Hand Break Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. As you can probably tell, I'm not Ian Stone, who, just as the fixtures have got a little bit tricky, has jetted off to the Caribbean for a couple of weeks. Lucky for some. I'm Jay Harris. I'll be hosting the show in his absence. I'm joined by Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Afternoon, guys. How are you doing? Very well, Jay. Welcome aboard. (laughs) Thank you very much. We'll be reflecting on the Villa game in the first half of today's podcast. And in the second, we'll be getting involved with the Athletics Invincibles advent calendar that's running this month discussing whether the 0304 side should have done better in Europe. Apparently, it was around this time, producer Jay mentioned we'd have to relive that quarterfinal with Wayne Bridge, that the internet on Stony Ship started playing up. So there you go. <laughs> Before we delve into the, the meat of the podcast, I mean, we should probably address the elephant in the room. Most people know me as the Brentford correspondent. So why on earth am I hosting the, the Arsenal podcast? I'm, of course, a secret Arsenal fan. Um, hiding in plain sight this whole time, even on that fateful August 2021 day a couple of years ago, which Arsenal fans still bully me for, shall we say. I just feel like I should give a a little list of my credentials as to why I should be here right now. My dad's an Arsenal fan. I'm an Arsenal fan. Grew up with the Invincibles. And I did go to the, the 2006 Champions League final and even missed a couple of days of school for it. <laughs> so um, So there you go. Anyways, back to the serious business. Amy, you suggested today's opener, so I'll come to you first. In the Patrick Vieira to Ashley Cole scale of how annoying players are after leaving Arsenal, where do you rate Emmy Martinez? Well, I'm wondering whether he's actually gone beyond the scale. <laughs> Controversial. I think what's complicated about it is that obviously most players who have a bit of a reputation when they leave the club, the reason people care so much is because they were so loved in the first place. And I don't think on that level, for all that Martinez did when he came in briefly to the team and showed a completely new side that Arsenal hadn't had with that kind of bullish character, personality and goal and took uh, Arsenal to the cup final, you can't put him on that same level as some of the real uh, iconic players who've gone on to leave the club and there are debates, let's just say, about how they're regarded subsequently. Uh, Van Persie, Sesk, uh, Ashley Cole being quite high in that list for most people. But um, for some reason, Emi Martinez seems to have a real thing about Arsenal and his body language and behaviour and pronouncements are very contemptful. And any opportunity he's got to lord it as if he's somehow more special than Arsenal he will take. I don't know if in the long run that's really going to wash. He might have got the win the other day. Still felt Arsenal with a better team. And obviously, it's still a happy memory to look back on that uh, own goal he got last year, which was uh, just magnificent fun. But yeah, he's just someone who gets under your skin, I think. And, and, And the fact that he's chosen to kind of make Arsenal an enemy after leaving just feels a bit ridiculous. Where does he uh, rank on your scale, James? <laughs> it's quite high up, which is a bit of a shame, really, because I followed Emmy's career quite closely and, and at various points in his Arsenal stint was rooting for him, you know, especially when he came into the team 
when Bernd Leno was injured, I, I really was impressed by him and felt there was a decent case for him to to stick around at the club and potentially challenge to be the number one in the long term. Obviously, it didn't go that way. And, you know, credit to him for what he's done, particularly with Argentina, um, cemented himself as part of that team. He does seem to play with a lot of needle. If it makes us feel any better, I don't think it's just us. I think that that is uh, <laughs> fundamental to how he plays. And he really seems to relish that aspect of it. But there's no, yeah, there's no niceties when he comes up against Arsenal. And he subsequently, yeah, he's pretty high on the list. Not quite Sami Nasri, but he's in that territory. <laughs> well, let's just jump straight into to Saturday's game then. Aston Villa 1, Arsenal 0. It was a frustrating evening. Felt like a real uphill battle after conceding in the, the seventh minute. So I'll come to you first, James, just for your thoughts on on what went wrong, really. This was always looking like a difficult fixture and there were a lot of ways that I envisaged Arsenal could lose this game. And weirdly, I didn't sort of think this would be one of them. You know, I, I saw the way Villa blew away City in midweek and they didn't do that here. I mean, these were wildly different games, albeit with similar score lines. My overriding frustration is that Arsenal didn't you know, put Villa to the sword, as they say. I, I think they were there for the taking at various points. I think there was kind of half-hour period, maybe either side of half-time, where their legs looked almost completely gone, and understandably so. There was space in behind. They were vulnerable to the press. And yet Arsenal didn't convert that into goals and frankly, didn't convert it into enough opportunities. You know, there were some big misses in this game and there'll be some focus on those, but I'm as frustrated by the chances Arsenal didn't create from some of the opportunities, the space, the territory they had. So yeah, frustration really was my my overarching feeling about the game. What about you, Amy? Yeah, similar really. And I think um, if you can turn it on its head and try and take a positive from it, uh, I look at the two games that Arsenal lost in the league this year and I don't feel in either of them that they should have done. It's a very convincing case to say that or imagine that Arsenal get points out of both those fixtures. And I think when you compare it to most recent seasons, they've, you know, in invariably been some games, James used the phrase, blown away. We all know the type of games that, that we're talking about where you can t- you, you, you feel it in your guts quite quickly that Arsenal just aren't ready to compete, let alone impose their game on uh, the opposition. And you have to stomach defeats that you look back on and think, well, didn't really deserve anything more out of that. But I don't think that's the case with Newcastle or Villa. And if I take a positive from that, it's that you're going to two of the hardest places you can go in the league. And... In both cases, although the points are not there, the performances have shown more than enough capacity to not be losing either of those matches. So there's progress in that. Then obviously the next step is to actually just turn that into real points rather than points that you regret that didn't quite come about. But at no point did I really feel Villa were the better side. Uh, yeah, the first 10 minutes, it looked a bit like that. Arsenal were very slow to get going and stood off a bit too much and the sort of things that are annoying about away matches. But once that was out of the way, I, I, I liked the way that it went very quiet at Villa Park. And that was down to Arsenal, I think, and the way they took uh, seized the, the control of that mid-period of the match. But yeah, annoying not to have the points that the, that the performance probably deserved but self-inflicted. 
do you think the team could have done more to defend the goal? James, you did a, a tweet, didn't you, about this sort of looking at it again and saying, I thought it was a, <laughs> very reasonable um, and quite right that in a perfect world, you, you know, someone spit tighter here, someone closes down a bit better there. But it was a really well-worked goal. And I just think it was one of those that it was irritating that Arsenal didn't do a bit more about it. But you also have to say, well done Villa on that goal. And it would have been the same if Arsenal had got some of the chances to the other end that they worked for themselves. A goal conceded isn't always down to defensive errors. You can pick holes in it all you like. And I guess that's what the coaching staff do. Sometimes you've got to say they did well there. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it was a really good goal. And yeah, maybe imperfect from from an Arsenal perspective, but I, I'm more in the camp of giving credit to Villa uh, on that one. There's um, a stat here which says Arsenal have conceded five goals from the last six shots on target they faced in the, the Premier League. What, do, what goes through your mind when you hear something like that? <laughs> a few things... I mean, the main thing is that I think obviously David Rye had a real shocker in the, in the week against Luton, which has probably distorted that stat somewhat. I also think that Arsenal are a side that increasingly doesn't give up a lot of chances, don't give up a lot of opportunities to the opposition. And so it does feel a little bit at the moment like we are being receiving the maximum punishment for the ones that we do. Um, but yeah, I mean, to give Rye his credit, I thought he made a really good save towards the end of the first half from Ollie Watkins uh, in this match, which was given offside, but I think on a review might well have stood had the ball hit the back of the net. It looked incredibly tight to me. As someone who's obviously watched Rea for two and a half seasons now and obviously for two years really closely at, at Brentford, if I may just uh, jump in here and say that I think some people underestimated how much of a jump up it would be for him to go to Arsenal. Obviously, he... For people who don't know his career background, he was playing for a local team in Spain, went to Blackburn Rovers, was playing for them in, in League One, um, does well for them in the championship, and then he gets his, his move to Brentford. So he's really worked his way up from the bottom to the top. And obviously Brentford have had an incredible couple of seasons in the Premier League and you know they've beaten Man City, beaten Liverpool, beaten Manchester United, and he's been phenomenal. He's been probably apart from Tony or alongside of Ivan Tony, their best player by far. But I think it's one thing excelling in a Brentford side, which has very low, or not very low expectations, but when they first got promoted to the Premier League, wasn't expected to do much versus an Arsenal team that's maybe for the first time in the last few years, certainly this season, genuinely feels like we're title contenders. And I think maybe that's taken him by surprise a little bit the amount of pressure and the amount of attention that he's facing Jay can I ask you with that knowledge and having watched him so closely do you back him to establish himself as a more trusted goalkeeper who feels more comfortable in that position or is there a possibility that it's just a bit too big for him I and mean, where's your gut on this over the last couple of months I've very much backed him and felt like he'll come good. I think the Luton game was the first time where I started to doubt myself and doubt him a little bit, only because everybody knows he's pretty good with the ball at his feet. But actually one of his biggest strengths was claiming crosses and claiming corners. And in that Luton game, he just looked, I don't want to say petrified, but he just looked completely out of his depth. So 
if the one skill that you're particularly good at, you start not excelling at that, that's where I was starting to worry. But come January, February time, if he's still making these errors, that's when I think I'll, I'll really start to worry. I've got one more question for you. Um, <laughs> I've got loads actually, but I think this is quite one that's on my mind. Do you see him potentially as a title winning goalie? And that's a big question, but like, I, I, I think generally when you look at the history of football, not just in, in the Premier League, but like almost anywhere in the world, you tend not to win a league without uh, an authoritative goalie who doesn't just save you situations, but kind of wins you points, if you know what I mean. You know how certain goalies, they make those saves that are seen as directly responsible yep. for winning points for the team. Do you think that he has got the capacity, the capability, if things settle down for him? Do you see a title-winning goalie there in terms of his personality and his attributes? Or do you think that still feels like a bit of a gamble? I want to say yes, but maybe if you compare him to when Liverpool bought Alisson. Alisson, they got him from Roma, right? Like he'd already played in the, the Champions League. I'm going to assume he'd already been capped by Brazil. I could be very wrong. Whereas like I kind of alluded to a minute ago, this is Reyes' first experience of competing at the top half of the table. It's his first time experience in European competition. I think he's been capped by Spain twice. So is he the final piece of the jigsaw straight away when Arsenal signed him this summer? I would say no. He still has a year or two to develop into that title-winning goalkeeper, I think. And it's not just the scrutiny of... Uh being in a, a title-challenging team, it's the added scrutiny of the, the goalkeeping situation at Arsenal with Aaron Ramsdale already there. And I thought it was really interesting, Mikel Arteta in his pre-game press conference suggested, you know, maybe the debate is impacting on, on David's performances. I don't think it's I easy for either goalkeeper in this scenario. Um, but, you know, to be fair to him, I'm glad we're talking about it because we've got you here, Jay, and you've got so much insight on him. But as I say, I, I don't think this was a game where he was particularly at fault in any way. Um, and I thought he made an important save from from Watkins on, on the halftime mark. Well, you know, I'm here. That's what I'm here for, right? To, to give that <laughs> little bit of uh, Brentford insight. You can you can give insight to anything, Jay. Once, you know, in this in this gang, anything goes. You, everyone says what they feel. Yeah, well, if you feel like asking any Ivan Tony questions later on, just let me know. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Amy, I know you asked the question last week about whether Odegaard is, is world-class or not. Were those finishes on Saturday examples of why he's maybe not quite there yet? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I think in, in some ways you wonder if he's suffered from setting such a high bar because people expect him to make those finishes now. Like when he first came, they weren't expected. And because he's turned it almost into a speciality, you see the, you know, him shaping up in that sort of position and expect that kind of ruthless, deadly, clinical edge that he has. I'm sure that no one is more annoyed than he is that he didn't take either of those chances uh, with a bit more clarity. But yeah, it, it, I guess maybe, you know, if we're talking the absolute uh, top of the mountain, best around kind of conversations, Nobody's going to be perfect in every game, but you, if you can make the difference in a game that's a bit tricky or a situation that's a bit tricky, it's really helpful, let's be honest. But then on the same token, I think Saka is undeniably world-class, but 
he didn't get himself quite right for either of those chances that came across to him. And again, it's a sign of quite how good he is. I think when the crosses came over, they didn't look easy to control to me. They weren't exactly tap-ins. <laughs> you know, he had to adjust his body and get volleys in from quite an angle and uh, didn't make the right connection, which is unlike him because he's so good. But yeah, nothing, nothing seemed to quite have that composure and that precision that was quite required, which was annoying because I think, as I said, Arsenal did more than enough to probably win the game and mind draw. Would you agree, James, on Odegaard? <laughs> I think I would say this was one game where his finishing did slightly desert him, but I think that's uncharacteristic of late. And actually, the first one, I liked the hesitation. I liked that he took his time. A lot of goalkeepers would have been sat down by those couple of touches in the box. I actually think that Emmy Martins did pretty well to stay up and make that save. I'm not sure uh, all Premier League goalkeepers would have done that. I think that he's really, really improved in terms of his arrival at the edge of the box, his uh, instinctive finishing, uh, the way in which he strikes the ball. And I, I, off the back of this one, I wouldn't say it changes the esteem I hold him in. Obviously, if this becomes a theme that continues throughout the season, then that changes. But I, I think this might have just been a bit of a bad night for him with this finishing. And I'd say the same for the rest of the Arsenal attack. You know, Gabriel Martinelli took up some really good positions, but didn't quite have the final touch or, 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 or pass. Saka, we've, we've mentioned. Gabriel Jesus, I thought, could have done better to maybe bring that ball from Bukayo Saka under control. He set such high standards for himself that I almost anticipated him being able to bring that under his spell and take the shot on goal. And I just feel like the front four maybe weren't at the races. What you need in a situation like that, and what I slightly fear Arsenal maybe haven't got, is equivalent players of similar calibre that you can kind of pull the roulette lever and say, right, we'll give these two and three a go and see if they've got that finishing touch. And you know, with respect to the guys who came on, I, I, I don't think Arsenal have that calibre of player on the bench in a way that maybe a Manchester City or, or a Liverpool do. Yeah, again, I feel like uh, Ivan Tony is uh, going to get <laughs> mentioned at some point, but we'll, we'll leave that to the end. Um, it feels like this season, there's a different contentious refereeing decision every week. Feels like there's two or three we've got a breakdown. Yeah, just... <laughs> It feels ridiculous that, you know, whatever incident, whatever contact, whatever bit of the body, it's not quite right. So Bruno Guimaraes, it's like, oh, it wasn't with the wasn't with the elbow, it was with the forearm. And then this one, it wasn't with the right bit, though it didn't have enough force. It wasn't, he didn't jab his arm out. What are you talking about? It's a nonsense. I think it was a double problem with the foul. One is impeding Eddie and Katia when he would have been through. And secondly... Uh, a clear elbow to the head. I'd, it felt to me like there were two opportunities to punish that severely and in the end, neither were taken. It's just ludicrous. Which decision were you most baffled by, James? Funnily enough, actually, um, the penalty, uh, the foul on Gabriel Jesus. Listen, I thought it was soft and I thought uh, Jesus made the most of it. But I feel like week in, week out, I am seeing those given. Like, And when... When Douglas Louise, uh, I think it is, who hangs the leg out, when Jesus goes down, you sort of do see a look of regret pass across his face. And I think he knows, like, I've been a bit irresponsible there. I've hung that out. 
I I was watching on Sky and Jamie Carragher was saying, I expect they'll give this. And I was fully in that camp as well. I, I just thought, I'd almost started thinking about, you know, well, okay, well, if we score, it's 1-1. I'd moved on in my head as soon as I saw the replay. So, yeah, I know, look, people are talking about the, the disallowed goal. People are talking about the potential sending off. But I was really surprised about that penalty one. What, which, which did you think, Joe? I was less confused about the Kai Havertz goal being ruled out for handball. But it just seems a little bit silly that Havertz is penalised for the handball when it also hits Matty Cash's arm. Mm. Uh, Amy, I can see you nodding away. What, what did you think about that? Yeah, the um, uh, uh, is it Dale Johnson, the guy who uh, specialises yes. in in uh, VAR reviews, writes very expansive co- columns about it. He wrote the following, and that really struck a chord with me. It highlights the bizarre nature of the two tier handball law. The ball accidentally touches a defender's arm, but there's no offence and he can play on. A second later, the ball accidentally touches an attacker's arm and he's now effectively locked out of being able to score a goal. And that is frustrating because it might be according to the letter of the current law, but the law's an ass in this case because, you know, if you're trying to favour what's accidental, depending on whether you're attacking or defending, and you're favouring defending, that's a real pity for for sport. 100%. I, I think it seems absurd almost that the there is an advantage given to the defender in that position. You know, I think as a sport, goals are what makes the game great. You know, they're the, they're the best moments in any match. And this particular law feels like it's working quite hard to find a way to disallow a goal. And yeah, the referee in the end got it right, but I think I think he kind of got it right almost by accident. I, I just don't believe that he could possibly have seen that contact. It was so minimal. And actually, there's a moment just before where Havertz takes the ball on his chest and his arms are sort of raised. My best guess would be that the referee thinks a handball has occurred there and it hasn't. And fortunately for him, VAR was able to, to pick out a, one later on where it just flicks off his finger. I think that law really needs to change. It's definitely a, a flaw in the, the law. And like you said, the referee's shown incredible 2020-esque vision to somehow spot that <laughs> handball. But the laws have just become so complicated. I mean, you talk about being at school when it was the Champions uh, uh, League final. And, you know, I go back a way, a way longer than that. And I just remember, you know, it, uh, it's handball, yes or no. It was just, there wasn't much debate about things like handball or even offside because the laws were so much simpler, but this kind of forensic examination of incidents. And it almost feels like the laws are written in such a way that you can probably find an excuse for most things one way or the other, if you wish to. And um, it's it's just sad because I think we'd all like to be able to not have these scientific analyses of, you know, a, a, a millisecond moment just let's watch football and let's have goals. I gather, uh, you know, obviously <laughs> yeah. the WSL doesn't use VAR and Arsenal did tremendously well in that this weekend. And uh, I saw a, a, quite a lot of people saying how refreshing they found it that not every goal, uh, as Arsenal thrashed Chelsea 4-1, was greeted with a review, a two-minute lull, a wondering <laughs> if it was going to count or not. But yeah, listen, the genie is out, well out of the bottle in the men's game now, I'm afraid. Just on that note, before we go to a break, there are probably Chelsea fans disagreeing with you um, because because of the the <laughs> yeah. penalty that Russo wins, where I think it's Jess Carter does get a foot to the ball, 
but and Katrinberger sort of takes up Russo, but a penalty is given anyways. But look, we, we benefited on that occasion, so uh, we're all smiling. Right, we're off for a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. They get a handbrake off and you can see that they are more free to play. Jay Harris, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas here on Handbrake Off. The Athletic is currently running an Invincibles advent calendar. So every day in the build-up to Christmas, there's a new piece celebrating the 20th anniversary of the unbeaten season in 2003-2004. It's our final game of the Champions League group stage tomorrow. And as we've topped the group with a game to spare, we thought we'd talk about the Invincibles in Europe. So I am, and I am genuinely sorry to do this to you both. We have to talk about the awful week that began with all goals in Manchester United knocking Arsenal out of the FA Cup before Wayne Bridge scoring late for Chelsea in the Champions League quarterfinal. So we'll start off with the, the Chelsea game. What are your your memories of that second leg? I'll start with you, Amy. Oof. Well, the thing is, though, and I, I, I feel when talking about that season in Europe, obviously that's, you know, the defining moment in the end. But there was lots of good in that Champions League run as well and like the 5-1 at Inter is one of my favourite games of all time in the group stages just round about where we are now so I think we should be championing the good stuff and um, <laughs> it was a very strange week but looking at it I think you have to look at that whole tie and I was at Stamford Bridge for the first leg of the of the um, Chelsea battle and what I really remember was how almost cocky Arsenal were at the end of that game. And I think it was Marcel Desi who gets sent off with, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes remaining. It was 1-1. Arsenal had their away goal and were playing great football. And they were almost playing what I would describe as Ole football, which was, you know, had this kind of swagger. They were swaggering around the bridge thinking, got the away goal, job done, we'll sort it out, second leg at home. On we go. And in and and there was a slightly kind of like butterfly feeling in the stomach of like, why not just go for it? Like, can win this bit, get another away goal and make life even more comfortable. But they were just passing the ball around and enjoying, you know, everyone was way. And it finished one one. And and in hindsight, those last ten minutes was a bit of an opportunity missed. That said, it was a absolutely chronic week in the life of the Invincibles. They had three massive games. FA Cup semi-final first, 
uh, at Villa Park against Man United. Rotten game. Thierry Henry was on the bench. Didn't quite go full strength because Arsene knew there was this big second leg against Chelsea to come. Lost that. And then Chelsea came and it was a it was a more tense match than I think Arsenal wanted it to be. But still they probably felt they had enough and they had enough chances to win. But it was a, just a, a one of those moments where you almost feel life stands still. There was like a freeze, you know, when when Wayne when Wainbridge scored. It just didn't seem possible. It was just not the script. And I think Arsenal was shell-shocked by that goal and there was no coming back from it. But I know from having spoken to quite a lot of those players involved how much they regret that now because I think there was a feeling within the squad at the time that this was the year. I think they felt that the Champions League, which in 2002 they were going quite well in and when they won the double in 2002 and... That was one year where I think they were very uh, frustrated that they went out to, uh, I think, Valencia on away goals. Is that right? Am I getting my years mixed up? I feel like um, just off memory, maybe John Carew scored a couple of goals for that, Valencia. Yes, yes, that was the one. And uh, I think that was, I think Leeds were in the semi-final that year, maybe. It was it was uh, uh, what was left in the competition made Arsenal really feel that they could have done it and they didn't. And then... This this 2004 season, again, which was ended up with Monaco and Porto and so on, these were not the anticipated biggest hitters in the uh, latter stages. It felt like a, a, a real daft opportunity missed for a team that many regarded as the best in Europe that season. It was around about then that Arsenal played against Portsmouth in the Cup and won 5-1 and got a standing ovation from all the Portsmouth fans. And Harry read up at the end said, they're the best team in Europe, possibly the world. I think they've moved on to another level. But it, 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 they just missed out on this slightly self-inflicted game against Chelsea. I've got another bit that's quite interesting that I will share with you. Jens Lehmann, never short of an opinion or an offbeat idea, actually had a conspiracy theory about when Arsenal went out in the Champions League then. And uh, I will read exactly what he said, but I will decline to do the accent. And he was really mad that uh, the league fixtures on either side of the games against Chelsea were about as strong as it gets. He said, I think it was the stupidity from the FA and probably intended to put us against Man United in the League and Cup, twice Chelsea, Liverpool and Newcastle. So the best four teams in England, we had to play them every three days. Mentally, normally we should have beaten Chelsea easily because we were better. But we were so tired at the end of this Champions League game and that was the biggest disappointment because this year we deserved to win the Champions League. But due to this idiot schedule, we were just too tired. We couldn't come back. It's still one of my major disappointments. We were probably the best team in the world, but because we had to play teams every three days, we've been knocked out of the Champions League. And who would disagree with Jens? Who would disagree with Jens? I mean, Jens to me sounds like a man who dropped one at the feet of Frank Lampard when Arsenal were one nil up. Uh, <laughs> he won't thank me for saying it, but that is what happened. That's actually my main feeling about this game: is just how fine the margins were. 
You know, it was so tight. Even that Weinbridge goal, I mean, even thinking about it, even talking about it makes me feel slightly uneasy. But I seem to recall that it's a one-two played with Ida Johnson, and Johnson slips the ball back to Bridge through Colo Torre's legs. And Colo Torre's like trying to close his legs shut. And he just misses the ball. And honestly, even the slightest flick or slightest deviation, probably we get to the end of normal time, 1-1, maybe Arsenal go on and win it. But it wasn't to be, you couldn't help but look at that final in 2004. Listen, they were good teams, Monaco and Porto. Obviously, a lot of players there, Deschamps and Mourinho, two managers who go on to do great things. A lot of players who go on to do great things, but not at the level of the Arsenal side in that season. And, you know, the 2006 final, which is obviously when we went even closer, was kind of the skeleton, the bones of that Invincibles team in some respect. You know, there were kind of elements of it there, but areas where we weren't as ready, where the players didn't have the requisite experience. And yeah, as I feel I would say actually as much regret, maybe even more regret about the Invincibles and that Chelsea game than I do about the final in 2006, which tells its own story, really. You kind of um, asked the question I was going to jump onto next, which was, was the 0304 team should they have done better in Europe than the the 0506 team? Because I certainly remember that the 0506 team. I think Matteo Flamini was playing at left back for the vast majority of the the knockout stages, and then Ashley Cole was kind of fit to return in the final. So it was a real mismatch of players, but they just somehow managed to get over the line. Whereas the 034 side, for whatever reason, just couldn't get it done. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, they had that run with the makeshift defence. Got Sol Campbell back for the final, obviously, and and Ashley Cole, I think, maybe played as well. But, you know, I, I, it was a very, very different Arsenal team by that point. And it, in some ways, they were, it was quite miraculous, really, that they got to the final and that they came so close to winning it. And you just wonder how much some of those players were propelled by missing out in 2004. They would have known, probably, this is our last chance. And I think that helped them get quite so close, but it wasn't to be on that occasion either. We've spoken about this Invincibles advent calendar and James, one of your pieces asked um, a risky question, but an important question, no less. Is it time to forgive Ashley Cole? Amy, earlier, you know, you spoke about Ashley Cole as an example in the annoying Arsenal players scale. So I can probably guess where he might rank, but I'm intrigued to know how do you, how do you remember Ashley? I remember the Arsenal boy who came through from Hairland which was a very different hairline in those days. In, and I remember the photo of him when he was a kid in, I think, 1991 when Arsenal won the league. And he's a little tiny lad with his Arsenal T-shirt and shorts on by the side of the pitch with the what was the old uh, first division trophy, the beautiful, beautiful trophy he got for winning the top division in those days. And um, him coming in and being one of the best defenders the club's ever had. I loved watching him defend. And I remember one of the things I always thought was brilliant about him was how he had this knack for clearing the ball off the line. I don't know how he did it, but the amount of times he, he'd think the ball was going in and Ashley would just appear and get it away. He relished defending. And it's Nigel Winterbird's birthday today, 60, which seems ridiculous. But what a player he was, by the way. There's a, there's a, a run of left-backs for Arsenal who were incredible players. Kenny Sansom, everyone thought was the best left back ever to play for Arsenal. Nigel Winterburn came and took took on from Kenny and was a absolutely monumental player for the club and a brilliant defender and 
not that long ago played in um, one of those charity matches and you almost thought he could still do it. First, absolutely remarkably fit and what a winner. And then passed on to Ashley, who was exceptional, an exceptional player. And the thing that was sad, obviously, with the way it all happened, was that we're talking about the Invincibles and in 2004, when Arsenal are supposed to be celebrating and winning the league of White Hart Lane, what a moment and memory of Ashley Cole getting a plastic Premier League trophy from the crowd and careering through the pitch and planting it in the centre circle at White Hart Lane. Proper Arsenal, that is. And so to go from that to the bitterness that came so hard. But it's it's a, it's a long, long time ago. It's water under, under the bridge and... Enough people involved with Arsenal have gone on the record since to say that they didn't cover themselves with glory. Uh, it wasn't just Ashley Cole being greedy. The the the, the tapping up was abysmal uh, and unhelpful to everybody. But I don't have that much bad feeling towards Ashley. I have much more good feeling towards him. And I wish that the relationship was repaired because I hold the Invincibles in such esteem. And I don't like the fact that there's someone who's a bit separate from the group. So I would like everyone to kiss and make up, but I think it, it's both ways. I think it's all very well saying, can Arsenal forgive Ashley, but can Ashley, you know, he's got to do players part as well. I'd like to see him give a more warm and benevolent, you know, be brave enough to say, I want to look back at my time as Arsenal and say how much I loved it and how much a part of all that I, I'm proud to be. Instead of just kind of almost closing the door, it, it, it's sad because it's bitter in both ways maybe, but I had Monday that it won't be. Well, I think there's three parties really. You know, there's obviously the club themselves. And it was interesting recently hearing David Dean almost apologise to Ashley and say he felt the club couldn't have more to keep him. There's Ashley, who, you know, has been pretty cold on Arsenal for some time now and, reluctant to talk about it but I think there's us as well as fans and you know a lot of uh, stick was dished out to Ashley some of it fair but some of it really unfair and some of it very personal and I think we uh, as a fan base I don't know but speaking for myself I feel like you know I, that's something I need to revisit and sort of think was that right was that appropriate you know, and I think I think we always have a bit of agency in this as supporters. So I'd love to think it could be healed over time. I'm not particularly optimistic, football being what it is and tribalism being what it is. And, and given the reality of what happened as well, which you can't ignore. But man, what a player. You know, I, I genuinely think there's a case for him being the, the finest player Arsenal's academy has produced. It's not clear cut, but I think you can make the case. I think he was the best left back in the world. And not many clubs get to say they produce the best left back in the world. Like you said, it's um, the fans have to to play their part in this. When obviously the idea of your your article was floated, James, I messaged you straight away, didn't I? Basically saying what a what a hot topic it was. I mean, I was eleven when um, Cole left Arsenal, and um, it felt different to Patrick Vieira the the year before. And I think he was the first example of a player where felt a little bit betrayed as an 11-year-old Arsenal fan 
that someone who'd grown up supporting the club decided to to go over to Chelsea. And look, maybe if he he ends that season and Arsenal win the Champions League, then maybe people say, do you know what? You've gone out on a high, go off for a new challenge. But I think the fact that Arsenal have, you know, not really come close to to doing much in the Champions League since then, whereas Ashley Cole went over to Chelsea and helped them them win it for the first time in their history. I think that kind of just adds a little bit of extra salt into the wounds. I th- I think we've we've just talked far too much about Chelsea in this <laughs> podcast and the things that were difficult to stomach. I think we need to find some redress somewhere. Maybe just looking at what Chelsea nowadays is some sort of help. But, yeah, know. that's true. They didn't have a great weekend, men or women's team. I was just thinking about, you know, for Emmy to really take top spot as annoying ex-player, I think him and Unai need to lift the Champions League. If that oh, happens, sure. he'll be undisputed. Well, you've actually brought me to something I was discussing with my, my mates last week. It's the doomsday scenario, um, Unai Emery leading Aston Villa to the, the Premier League title this season. If he did, I think we'd all have to take our hat off to him. I mean, it would be an extraordinary feat. Listen, I think they're a good size and I think they've got a really good chance of being top four, certainly top six. I hope I'm not being naive or disrespectful, but I, I just don't see them lasting the pace um, in the in the title race. But uh, stranger things have happened, uh, I suppose. True. We did briefly touch on it, but I wanted to speak to you both about Arsenal women beating Chelsea 4-1 at the Emirates. I think it was a record crowd in the in the WSL as well. I'm not too sure if either of you managed to to catch this game and, and can wax lyrical about a great performance. I, I, I wasn't there, sadly, but I am nearby and I did hear the goals going in from my house, <laughs> like with proper, slightly higher pitched roars than normally would be the case for a roar greeting a, a goal at one of the men's games, which I thought was quite sweet. It's just great that so many more young people can attend those big experience matches at the Emirates because it's so difficult to get tickets for anything nowadays. But it was obviously a phenomenal occasion for those there and a statement victory, I think, for this Arsenal team, um, getting players back and trying to build, um, to really, really compete again and bring back silverware. Obviously, Chelsea are uh, so strong in the women's game, but to have such an emphatic result and and not undeserved was really a, probably a, a, a great, great injection of belief for this team for the rest of the season. And yeah, there was a great atmosphere sort of locally and to be getting nearly 60,000 at the Emirates is, there's a lot that was talked about it on the, on the TV and stuff. I think other clubs around the country are taking a lot of notice of how Arsenal are putting this really big push into promoting the women's team, promoting attendance, promoting season tickets, uh, promoting a sense where really what's fascinating about it is a lot of these players are are stars in in the game to their supporters. And I always find it incredible to think that there are lots of adults that go around with Arsenal shirts with the women's names on the back, just, you know, in the way that they would for the men's team. And these are things that just were impossible to imagine a decade or so ago. You know, you tell me, in, in, around the time of the Invincibles in 2004, uh, Arsenal were at Highbury, tell me that you're going to get 60,000 people, more than the capacity of Highbury at the time, to watch the women and it be live on TV. It's just quite extraordinary when you contextualise this growth 
And for Arsenal to be at the forefront of that because they're pushing it so big is creditable. I just wanted to um, quickly say as well, you obviously spoke about not only was it a great performance, but it was a great performance against a Chelsea team who've been very good over the last couple of years. Um, I don't know if either of you caught this, but there was some very, very high praise from Emma Hayes afterwards who said, the best team by a country mile one today. They dominated us in every aspect. We were bullied. And when somebody asked Emma Hayes if there were any positives, she said, I've only got a 20-minute drive home. <laughs> She's class. So if that's what she thinks, that's a, a, another big feather in the cap. So um, I think to, to to round it off, we'll talk about Ivan Tony. I've name dropped him <laughs> too many times to to not briefly mention him. I'd like to ask you, Jay, in your mind's eye, if you imagine transplanting Ivan Tony into the Arsenal team, what do you see? I see something and a player that I think would work really well. Everybody knows that Ivan Tony is a good goal scorer. I think he's proven that. I think he's scored, I think it's 32 times in, in, in two seasons in the Premier League. But what I think he's quite underrated at is actually his his passing. Um, he's pulled off a couple of really good assists. And the best example I can give you is when Brentford beat Man United 4-0 and he plays a first-time pass. It was bouncing with his left foot for Brian Bumo, and it's just a fantastic through ball. And it's not a disrespect to the, the players that Tony's playing with at Brentford, but obviously Brian Bumo is not on the same level as Bakayo Saka and Matthias Jensen is not on the same level as, as Martin Odegaard. And so I think if you put Tony into a team of players of that calibre, I think you'd see his assist numbers go through the roof. I think you'd see the amount of chances he creates go up. And obviously, he is just a very different profile of striker to what Arsenal currently have. So for the sheer fact that he would offer something different and it's another thing that teams would have to work out how to counteract, I think would be really valuable for Arsenal. I agree. I, I, you know, I, I think that he would offer a, a different profile, a forward, enable us to play in a different way. I think he's obviously a real threat inside the penalty box. Listen, I think Gabriel Jesus is fantastic as Arsenal's centre-forward. And the question's often asked, well, is Ivan Tony an upgrade on Gabriel Jesus? I think that's sort of the wrong question. I think it's more, is he an upgrade on an Eddie, for example? You know, is he a, a better alternate than we currently have available? As I said earlier in the show, when you look at the top sides, City and Liverpool, they have options, they have numbers, they're able to interchange forwards without really reducing the quality. And I don't think Arsenal are in that place yet. I think Ivan Tony could help them get there. But at the cost, you know, the likely price that Brentford would demand, I'm not sure if Arsenal have the resources to go there in January. Do you think he'll leave in January, Jay? What's your understanding of the situation? I'm sceptical if it will happen in January. Um, I'm not ruling it out. Never rule these things out because they'll they'll come back and get you. But I think at the moment, the most important thing to realise is that Brentford lose Brian Bumo and Johan Visser to the Africa Cup of Nations in in January, which means they'd be left with Neil Mope, Keen Lewis Potter, and Kevin Sharder as their their forwards. I think if they got an offer that that blew them out of the water, they'd consider it. But I just think at the moment, all that extra context means they'll probably think we'll just keep him for another six months and then let him go in the summer. And obviously, traditionally, you'd say that there's probably going to be more interest in him in the summer as well. January is always a difficult time for teams to do deals. Um, so my gut instinct is that he'll probably stay, but 
he could go. You you don't know how what's going to happen exactly. So I think that rounds us off nicely for today. So before we finish up, I just wanted to ask you both for your for your songs. Well, I, I'll go first. I was thinking about Emmy and those ex players who leave. So I was thinking about songs about seeing an ex again, basically. And there's a song <laughs> called "Damage" by a band called Yellow Tango, which uh, really illustrates the sort of pain that you can feel when you see someone who you were close to and who you loved and you know you don't have that relationship anymore yeah i'm sure the away fans got a little bit of that at villa park on saturday and uh, this song illustrates that emotion beautifully amy have you got one yeah, I, I did, what James is saying, I had a song in my head that um, he just made me think of the away fans. I might say to him, Narcissus, but it's maybe not one for publication. <laughs> um, so I'll go for something else. I, 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 I was inspired by um, just the sense of like trying to understand all the new rules in football and why certain things get given and certain things don't that are comparable and all that irritation. And I've gone for a song, a band I'd completely forgotten about that I used to love called Cowboy Junkies. If you kind of imagine a sort of slightly indie, bluesy, yeah, that that they were. Uh, I really like them. And there's a song called "I Don't Get It." So that's how I feel about football decisions these days. I don't get it. Too confused. Nothing makes sense. Well, I've been very much put on the spot, so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go the same uh, angle as you, James, in terms of uh, a breakup esque song um, with the the Ashley Cole scenario in mind. I'll do um, "Butter" by a tribe called Quest, which is about um, a rapper who thinks he's found the one, only to find out that she's left him for somebody else, which feels quite apt. In that case, it does. For sensitivity, because I am not the one. I got more game than Parker Brothers. Like dog is on the mic, and I'm smooth like So um, that's it for today. Thank you very much, guys, for having me. It's been a been a real pleasure to um, talk openly about Arsenal for once instead of in secret behind closed doors. We'll be back on Wednesday post PSV. So massive thanks to Amy, to James, and to Jay, our producer. I've been Jay Harris. Thanks everybody for listening. Until next time. 